0: Hopefully you all have Bibles. We're going to be picking it back up in Revelation chapter two this night. Actually, we're going to begin at the end of chapter one. Actually, so you can open up your Bible to there. So we're going to finish first revelation. revelation. one verse twenty is where, we're, is where we will be starting. It's been a little while since we have been in our series on the apocalypse of Jesus Christ due to the holiday, and also to the reality that we took a another foster placement right in the end of November. So I want to take a little bit, just a little bit of time, just to go over some of the things that we've already covered. Not a lot of time. I just want to recap a little bit, just so that we are thinking about this book rightly, because we want to do that, right? We want to think about this book in a correct way. We want to rightly understand this book. And that's really the first thing to remember. Revelation is a book that is meant to clear things up for us as Christians. It's not supposed to confuse us. It's not meant to scare us or things like that. This is a book that is supposed to be understandable for us, and it's also supposed to bless us when we understand it rightly. That's definitely not to confuse or scare us. Secondly, we all have presuppositions and factors that help or hinder us in interpretation of a book and any book of the Bible. And we consider those things back in the first sermon that we had in this series. That sermon was titled a, a, um, Prolegomena. And of course, there's there's only one right interpretation of the Bible, but let me remind you where I'm coming from at least, so that we can know, um, know how I'll be teaching through it. Uh, so I would say that the book was written in 90 AD, that's when John wrote it, so it's 20 years after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the old covenant is officially gone, and Christ is the mediator of the new covenant alone, and this impacts, impacts how we understand what John is writing. So it's right after the emperor Domitian has instituted emperor worship, and the persecution against Christians was just ramping up. We even see evidence of this in our text uh, that we'll be reading over the next uh, few weeks or months. And then thirdly, I'm convinced of the interpretational method called amillennialism, and this impacts us more than just how we understand Revelation 20 and that passage that mentions the millennium. Uh, primarily for our short time tonight, it means that Revelation, the vast majority of the book, is speaking about things that are happening right now. Not just future events, not just past events, but the majority of the book of Revelation is about the Christian life for people living in between Jesus' first and second coming. So Jesus's um, ascension into heaven and his, and his second coming, actually. So the things written in this book are taking place in 90 A.D., most of them are taking place now, and they'll continue to take place until Christ returns. And the final chapter of the book deals with those events even. And then lastly, the substance of chapter 1. We got some introductory things that are important, such as knowing that we're meant to understand this letter and be blessed for it. And then it's all contained within this greeting from the throne room of God, a greeting from Father, Son, and Spirit, a triune greeting. And then there's this lengthy description about Jesus. John describes what he saw, not physically, with his eyes, he's not, he's not describing physical characteristics, he's describing the character and nature of Jesus. We also learn in chapter 1 that Revelation is written to seven churches, seven specific churches, to every church in general because of that number seven. So with chapter 2, we'll begin to see the specific messages to those seven churches. So let's read um, one twenty and then the first verse in chapter 2, and then I'll explain kind of the, the goal for tonight. So the reading of God's word beginning at Revelation one twenty. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray, actually, first before we um, get to understanding the plan for tonight's text. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and it is good uh, that we are able to gather tonight and to be in it. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to grow in knowledge of you so that our love for you might grow as well. There is none other that is worthy of glory and adoration and honor in comparison to you, Lord. May you be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, the passage um, that... Uh, of two verse one is basically the introduction to a set of seven similar passages that are going to be the focus of our time in chapters two and three seven passages because there are seven short sets of instruction to seven churches in different cities or provinces not because there are only seven churches in this area mind you there's more than seven churches existing in this region of the world at this time but because this is apocalyptic literature It takes advantage of numerology. It takes advantage of numbers, to tell a story more completely. Remember we've mentioned that before, but numbers are significant in this book. And they're often mentioned for more than just keeping tallies. There's a significant theological reality behind specific numbers. And there is in the use of number seven, an allusion to totality. We're meant to think of more than just seven, uh, but actually like the perfect or the total amount of churches in in all of the ages, uh, in this case it's church in all the ages. But in other parts of the Bible, it might mention, um, or in Revelation, it might mention this number seven and attached to something else. Whatever it's attached to, it's wanting to talk to like the total amount or the perfect, the perfect total sum of all the whatever a thing is a completeness. Yes, um, and in this context, it's speaking again of the seven churches, the literal churches that exist then, but also all of the churches in every age, uh, in between Christ's ascension and his second coming. And we know that's actually the case because John tells us the church is in view here. But really, it's Jesus himself that tells John that the church is in view here, right? That's what verse 20 in chapter one explains. The vision that John sees is mysterious to him. He sees the Son of Man in all of his glory holding seven stars in his hand, and he's walking through the seven lampstands. We don't have to figure out what these things mean. Jesus himself tells us so that that we're not supposed to take them literally. The seven stars are what he calls the angels to the seven churches, and the lampstands are the churches themselves. And so remember, there are these seven angels, we'll talk about that soon, and seven churches that are historic and are specifically addressed here. But because the number seven is utilized here, we're to also think how the totality of the church is in view. That the issues which are specific to these specific congregations, which we'll be going over the next few sermons, at least seven, I would think. um, These are also things that the church in every age can learn from and have application from. So us as well, too, then. And this is very important. We can't make the mistake that so many others do when it comes to the book of Revelation. If we want this book to be of help to us and use to us. Um, So many read this book and they see it all as something that has happened in the past or they see it all as something that will happen in the future. And when you do that, what happens is you're just, you have this tendency to just skim over the text and not really think about how it applies to you. But that's not what this letter is for. Again, this letter is for us to understand and to bless us. It's about, it's for us today, just as it is for people um, back in 90 AD as well too. So this is something that we need to be thinking about. Now, this is gonna be introductory to the seven letters and I included the introduction to the church in Ephesus, but we won't be touching on the specific admonitions and encouragements and critiques that are listed for that church. We'll deal with that come next week, Lord willing. But there are some similarities across all seven passages, and I wanted to address those first and now so that we don't have to rehash these things every single sermon, basically. So this will be more just introductory to the seven churches. In fact, I think, what did I title for the sermon tonight is to the angels of the churches. Because we need to think about what that means really. And then because we're going to see that pattern across the, these whole set, these seven passages in chapter two and chapter three. So the first thing to notice, and really it's kind of already been pointed out, but each of the seven passages is addressed to a specific recipient. First off, it's to the church in Ephesus that's in view. And remember each congregation has specific things to hear, uh, which we should t- also take note and to take to heart as general warnings and encouragements for ourselves as well But at the same time this whole book revelation chapter 1 all the way through chapter 22 is for the saints at ephesus and at, at that time as well as the six other churches mentioned just like it's also to us today as well and ephesus was an important place back when this was written it was a major city something like what we would think of san francisco today uh, but also was an important place for the church I mean, it was planted by the Apostle Paul. Apollo spends time teaching there. Timothy teaches time, spends time teaching there. Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus, and they're Do know teaching like the, the saints. The church. We don't. We're never told how big any of the early churches are, at least on the Scripture. The only thing that I can even think of is in Acts when Peter preaches, and he says there were three thousand added to the church at that time but we're never told specifically how big these congregations are, but it's much different than today. So like in the church in Ephesus, well, there is just one church there. It's not like today where you can go to First Family Church, or you can go to Laurel Ridge or Golden Hills or, you know, whatever uh, Presbyterian church, whatever church you want to. There wasn't that diversity like that. So it could have been pretty big, and because Ephesus was so large, Odds are pretty high that the church was pretty big as well, too, just because the city itself was so large. So a lot of ministry is going on. here. This is a church. And also, of course, um, the Apostle John has some influence with the church. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be writing them a letter. So a lot of ministry going on here. This is a church that if you were to think from a human perspective would be a solid and strong church considering the pastoral influence that has been present here. Um, in every generation, really, God gives to the church certain ministers uh, who are just mere men, right? But certain pastors and elders whose work in the church is well known and celebrated. Uh, you might think of, throughout the course of history, people like Justin Martyr, Polycarp, John Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, John Wycliffe, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Edwards, Benjamin Keach, Thomas Goodwin, John Bunyan, John Gill. Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur. These are pastors who God has chosen to use to be a gift to the church that are remembered for significant contributions to the church through preaching and teaching, through writing books and things like that. Of course, there are hundreds of thousands of faithful ministers who do good and, and impact the kingdom of God that history doesn't remember, but God knows them, of course. My point being, though, that the church in Ephesus basically had the who's who's list of prominent ministers after the resurrection of Christ. And yet here they are receiving a specific letter with specific instruction and warnings from the Lord. The other churches mentioned don't have the same benefit that Ephesus did and what we may consider to be like the caliber of preachers that were there. We actually don't know who were some of the preachers in some of these other churches. But it's safe to say it probably wasn't the same people that were in Ephesus. And churches in every age, uh, some will have men that God uses greatly, like John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon. And some will have men that are just as faithful, yet lack the fame of the aforementioned people. Wide and famous ministry doesn't equal faithfulness. We understand that, hopefully, uh, I would think. Some of the biggest churches with the most famous ministers are temples of Satan. Some big churches with famous ministers are true and faithful churches, of course, as well. And there are small churches with unknown ministers that are temples of Satan as well. And likewise, there are small churches with pastors who are just as famous or who are just as faithful as these famous counterparts. The size of the congregation doesn't determine faithfulness. What does is adherence to God's word. What does is, can a church say with the Apostle Paul, we preach Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians two two. What does is, can a church say, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, Colossians 1:28. What does is not shrinking back from the whole counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 27. And also, faithful churches reform themselves according to the word of God, and they repent from sin when there is need to do so, when they become aware of it. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, having a good and faithful pastoral staff is important, of course. I mean, without it, you can't really have a church, a true church. But even with that, a church simply can't just relax and coast. There are serious issues, sin issues, things that could cause a church to be disqualified and have its lampstand removed even. We'll deal with that when we get further on into uh, chapter 2. But just because a congregation has faithful ministers doesn't mean that there can't be serious issues within the church that need, excuse me, that need to be addressed and met with through study in God's Word. It's humbling that it's this way. That there could be issues even in a strong, healthy church with good, faithful eldership um, that has a sort of serious sin issue that needs the attention of the whole church. And it should humble us and it should serve us to remind us that our hope as Christians should never be in the pastors, the elders, in the people of the church, but in Christ and Christ alone. We should be thankful for faithful elders and have respect for them, but our hope is not in them. Our hope is in Christ. And isn't that what Revelation, what this apocalypse is about even? It's about finding our hope in Christ as we live to glorify him it is it is what it's about so the warnings of scripture warnings like the ones that we're going to read about through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and elsewhere in this book as well too and warnings like we read about in first corinthians 10 or hebrews 6 and 10 and in jude and in many places in the old testament and the new testament they are necessary for our sanctification individually and even corporately as a congregation as as the body of Christ for our preservation and for our sanctification. Sanctification means our, our growing in grace. It's this work that God does in us to conform us to Christ in which we desire to do more and more good works. In which the more Christ sanctifies us, the more we desire to be faithful and obey what his word says. The church must always be looking back to the word of God. The ministry of the preached word must always be the most important thing that a church has. It's good to do works in the community. It's good to, to serve others and things like that. But the preached word is always the most important thing that a church do, will do until Christ returns again. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 6, 10 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures do that. And so through the scriptures, which are the very words that God inspired the authors to write, we can examine ourselves and test ourselves as 2 Corinthians 13 and 2 Peter 1 instructs us to do. A healthy church is one that is emphasizing the preaching of God's word, and a healthy Christian is one who is sustained by a large diet of God's word, both preached and personally read. And that could look different for different people as you grow. But whatever ministry a church may have, if it is really going to be effective, it needs to be bathed in God's word. It needs to be rooted in what God's word says, specifically the preaching of Christ and him crucified. The preaching of God's word is the primary means of grace available to us. It is the method that God blesses in growing and sanctifying the church. And we today are even at a better place than these people in Ephesus had. They didn't have the, a, a nice book bound together with all of the Old Testament in it and then all of the um, New Testament letters all easily accessible right at their fingertips. Or they didn't have nice like little smartphones where you had like, you know, 30 different translations and the original languages just right there for you to access. We have these wonderful resources at our fingertips that the early church didn't always have. But this church in Ephesus, they were blessed to receive divine scripture specifically addressed to them, course. Uh, of course, the words of the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ are the scriptures themselves, and the section that we're going to be first looking at next week, as well as intended to first um, mature, sanctify, and grow the church in Ephesus, but then also to be a light to us and to the church in every age for our edification and for our building up as well, too, in other words. But notice, it's not just the church in Ephesus that this letter is addressed to. It's to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And more... All seven of the churches addressed it in chapter two and three begin this very same way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus or Smyrna or the different uh, five other ones that are listed as well, too. Each of these seven churches have an angel belonging to them. So there are two things I want to do with the remainder of our time this evening. Number one, address the issue of the angel in the church. And then two, uh, note the similarities and structure across all seven passages to the seven churches and then have application from that. That we should keep in our minds as we go through these next two chapters over the next few weeks or so. And really the whole book, actually, as well. So first then, not only are these letters addressed to churches, but they're specifically to the angel of the church. That's interesting, right? Uh, Lots of questions come from this, I would think. Do only these seven churches have angels? Uh, Do all churches, do all true churches have an angel? What about churches that aren't good or orthodox? Do they have an angel assigned to them? Is this along the same line of thinking that we read like in, in Matthew 18 where Jesus is talking and he says that children – and he's he wanting to warn people of not leading children astray. And so he tells these teachers to beware because these children have their angels always before the face of the Father where they have like, that's kind of where we get that idea of a guardian angel. We don't have time to think about all that tonight, but that's, I think, where that comes from. Or perhaps uh, it's an allusion or parallel to Daniel chapter 10, as G.K. Beale believes. He says, um, excuse me, he notes there in Daniel 10, that there are these princes mentioned that would seem to indicate angels being involved with the deeds and the protection of people on the earth. Again, that is, again, let's take that J.K. Beale says he, he believes these to be actual supernatural spiritual beings that a church has or is this more along the lines of a translation question since the word angel simply means messenger in the greek of course when we hear or see the word angel we automatically think of the spirit being right something that is not human something that is supernatural but that's not necessarily the case when you consider the greek word uh the greek meaning of the word the New Testament does this in other places, by the way. It translates this this Greek word here, which is, enheloi, enheloi, which is angel in the Greek. It translates it as messenger. Uh, we see that in Matthew 11.10, in which Jesus tells the people that John the Baptist is the messenger that's going to prepare the way for him. Uh, he's the messenger or the anheloi in the Greek that would go before and prepare a way. Or in James 2, in which James writes about uh, Rahab, and the messengers she hid, and then she sent them out from in, from Israel. Those messengers, it's the Greek word in heloi. So this word that the ESV translators chose to translate as angel rather than messenger could very well be referring to a human, to a minister of the gospel, specifically to a specific elder or a team of elders. And I think the correct way to see this, which is how Joel Bickey sees it, is that you so we should recognize this word angel here, as a human messenger of the gospel but that doesn't negate the spiritual or the supernatural element to it in other words there is a heavenly or supernatural work that is being done by faithful ministers who preach the word of god to the people of the congregation the apostle paul alludes to this in ephesians 2 actually ephesians 2 17 when he tells the church in Ephesus, which is interesting because this first church is to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 2.17, the apostle Paul <coughs> – excuse me – he tells the church there that Jesus came to them um, and preached peace to them. Well, did Jesus ever, <coughs> excuse me, in his earthly ministry, go to Ephesus? He never did. He stayed within Israel. Ephesus is a Greek uh, city, province. Jesus never actually went there. Well, then how could Paul say in Ephesians 2.17 that Jesus preached peace to them? <coughs> Excuse me. He did it, though, through the preaching of the word. When the preachers rightly proclaim God's word, it's as if Jesus was there speaking to them. So Jesus never actually did come to him. <coughs> James Janeway, a Puritan, said this about preachers. He said his, meaning God's, ministers are sent to do the work of inferior angels. To preach glad tidings of great joy. Caught Mather, another Puritan, he says, if you bring the gospel to those in the shadow of death, your ministry will do the work and give you the welcome of a good angel unto them. The Apostle Paul even writes that the saints in, in Galatia, this is Galatians 4.14, that they welcomed him as an angel of God. Yeah, for real. Um, and so, <laughs> I was talking to them, the girls are there. Sorry. <clears throat> They're throwing up a sea. They're throwing up a sea for COVID, which who knows. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh it's okay. I think I think i just cleared it. So there's a proper way I think uh it's the heat from this heater. <coughs> it's not helping. <laughs> so anyways, there's a proper way I think to see these angels of the churches here in Revelation uh one through three that are to see them as ministers of the gospel, preachers of the word, and to also notice that it is the message which preachers preach, when it's described uh, before about faithful churches, is a um, is a spiritual exercise. It's so important that this is the case that we listen well when the word is preached, myself included. When I don't preach, I want to prayerfully make sure that I'm listening well, because again, <coughs> the preached word is a spiritual exercise. Even when I do preach myself as I prepare, I hope I'm listening to what the Lord is saying in his Word. I've been delivering that back to you. That's exactly how the apostle Paul describes that situation in Ephesians two seventeen that Jesus came and preached peace to them is through the preached word of somebody else and Another thing too is that these angels mentioned here have to be people, I would think, because they are associated with the sins of the church, and these aren't fallen angels. These aren't demons that could be over true churches, and there's nothing in all of Scripture that lead us to think that there could be another exodus, a mass exodus of angels rebelling against God, especially now after the plan of redemption, which First Peter tells us angels desire to look into, has been revealed because Christ is reigning. So these are, I don't think could be like just spiritual beings. These angels that are mentioned here are faithful ministers of the word of God who faithfully preach God's word, which is a spiritual exercise. Joel Beeking in his commentary lays out a compelling case based off Puritan writers that shows four points of likeness between ministers of God's word and angels. So let me go over these for you because it makes the, the spirit's point in choosing to use the word in Heloi more impactful rather than just saying elders who are messengers of God's word. So number one, both angels and elders study God's mysteries. Benjamin Keach, a Puritan in particular Baptist, points out that angels desire to look into the mystery of God. That's what um, Ephesians 1, or excuse me, 1 Peter one twelve said. Peter's point there was that, look how blessed we are. And we, who in the new covenant, we know this mystery plan of redemption that God has revealed. And angels desire to look into it, but God hid it even from them until it actually happened. Um, And so true ministers of of God's word dig into, they look into the hidden mysteries of God in God's word. It's probably worth mentioning as well that when the scriptures mention the word mystery, it's not in the context that we normally think of. Like when I hear the word mystery, like in the world, what I probably think of is something that doesn't have an explanation. Like that's like the mystery spot in Santa Cruz, although I think we, we can say what the explanation for that is. But that's usually what people think of. A mystery in God's word is different than that. It's the plan of God that wasn't yet revealed, but it existed. And so someone who ministers God's word digs in the word to, reveals those mis- to reveal those mysteries. And angels, First Peter, tells us angels do that same thing. Secondly, both angels and ministers of God's word are God's servants. Angels aren't just free beings equal to God or something like that. Even the devil, Martin Luther famously said, is God's devil. <coughs> angels do what the Lord instructs them to do. They're obedient to God, and faithful ministers seek to do that as well. Not seeking our own will, but we if we will be faithful ministers of God, we should seek to do the will of God, not our own. Same thing as angels. Uh, the third thing, they both serve the church. <clears throat> Hebrews 1.14 says that God sends angels to minister to the heirs of salvation, which would be us if we're saved here in this room. Daniel 10, alludes to that as well. And when you think of the work of a minister in the church, their primary work is to the church. It's not to the lost outside of the church. We might do things to the people outside the church, but primarily we minister to one another in the body. And then fourthly, they both minister and comfort the downcast. Benjamin Keach writes that angels were sent to comfort Christ when he was in agony. Uh, we read that in the gospel accounts. At certain occasions in scripture, we would see angels appear to people to encourage them and tell them of God's blessings. And a minister of God's word is to do the same thing too. That, that's in part what preaching is about. is to build up the church. How? By pointing to Christ, by preaching Christ that we can be comforted and have full confidence in and hope in what Christ has done and not ourselves. So it's totally appropriate here to realize that the angels of the churches are ministering people, the elders who have a spiritual work before them. Literally, elders are to minister Christ to Christ's people because Christ is your hope. Again, this is part, this is in part why I was emphasizing earlier the importance of faithful ministers. You don't want a guy to stand up before you and tell you personal stories about himself. That might be entertaining, or certainly it is entertaining. To hear that type of thing. You don't want a guy to stand before you and just kind of make light of the situation, tell funny jokes, and you know offer some good moral advice. While that, might, while that might keep you entertained and keep you focused, it's not what is actually going to help you. What we need is to have Christ preach to us. Christ and his death and his resurrection and the hope that comes to us in that. It is Jesus Christ and his righteousness that enables us to be right with God. It is his holiness accredited to you through faith that makes you accepted in God's presence and a son or a daughter in his kingdom. It is Christ preached to you that contributes grace, which makes you want to put to death the sin in your life that remains because of the loveliness of Christ. And the same is true for churches back then as well as for churches now. And so the last thing I want to mention is that each of these seven passages follow a similar structure or pattern. They all begin by saying to the angel of the church, and then it lists the specific church. And then from there, they note who it's from, which takes us back to what we read in chapter one. These are all messages from Jesus, and they, you'll, you'll see that. <clears throat> then there's a, a, a commendation for all but one congregation. A commendation is um, congratulating them, saying you're doing this well. Then it's followed by a criticism for all but two of the congregations. And then a correction for all but one. And then lastly, there's a challenge to those who are conquering through Christ. All seven passages will follow that structure. But what comes through this is that each letter is is intimate, really. They're, They're personal. And we should understand, brothers and sisters, and this should be a great comfort to us, that Christ knows his church. He knows us well. He knows these seven congregations, obviously, because he's telling them specific things. But remember, again, this number seven, it's used here because he's wanting to communicate to us the totality of the church. Christ knows his bride. We are fully known by the Lord Jesus. We aren't hidden from his sight. And if we are fully known by him, we are fully loved by him, too. We can exclaim with the Apostle Paul. Oh, the height, the length, the depth, and the width of Christ's love for us. Even his correction comes to us out of love. It's the means by which he perseveres us and he sanctifies us. And it's good that Christ knows us so perfectly, friends, because what that means is that we should always go to him. We shouldn't withhold ourselves from going to him. Whether things are going well and good in our life, we should go to Christ. We should go to Christ with our our needs and our our joys, our our things that we are thankful for. And when there are things going wrong in our life, we should go to Christ because he knows us so well. He knows us so perfectly. He is the husbandman of the bride. It is our privilege and benefit in the gospel to, to go to him. And what these seven passages, these seven churches tell us is that Christ knows us perfectly he's your he's your hope friends it's not me it's not some famous mega church pastor that's on tv or that's written many books god gives faithful ministers and we're thankful for them even if they're not well known they're they're going to be like we don't know any of the ministers who were in smyrna or philadelphia for example Yet there are faithful ministers god used them to build his church and he knows and so we should be thankful for that what matters if if a minister is going to be faithful is if he's putting christ forth and he's he's giving he's ministering to christ's church by proclaiming christ because christ is who we need and christ knows us so perfectly so that's what we're going to be thinking about as we go through these uh seven passages over the next few weeks or, or a couple months let's pray god you are holy and good we thank you for the way in which you love us and the fact that you are all knowing and omniscient we pray lord that you would help us to examine ourselves as your word instructs so that we might be clear about the way in which we are related to you lord we know that it's only because of grace that we can be saved so help us god to have no confidence in ourselves help us to always remember that we can go to christ because of multiple things namely his perfect love for us and then also for the reality that he knows all things he knows us even better than we know ourselves so we we love you and we need you we pray this all in christ's name amen any questions or anything guys okay